For the Old Testament reading, or the Old Testament lesson, I've chosen Psalm 41. Some verses from Psalm 41. This is a messianic psalm. What do you mean by that? It has to do with the Messiah, the promised Christ here. And as I read this, look for references to Jesus. These are also references to David, who wrote it, as he was experiencing these kinds of things, but they were a foretaste of what Jesus would undergo in his sufferings for us. I'd like to read verses 5 through 13. And especially notice verse 9, which does relate to our message in just a moment. Verse 5. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. Raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And now for our New Testament lesson, which also is the text of this morning, Luke chapter 22. at verse 47 through 53. When I uh, first came here back in uh, November 2019, in the evening service, I began a series on the miracles. And I touched a couple of lessons on the introduction to the miracles, and then I dealt with four of Jesus' miracles. And then, boom, COVID hit. We no longer met in the evenings, and so that series sort of went away. But I thought I'd share with you Today, I can't, there are a lot of miracles of Jesus that I will not be sharing with you, but I'm going to share with you this morning his last miracle, as recorded here in this section of the Word of God. Beginning at verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas... Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's ask God's blessing on us as we look at his word. 
Father, open up to our hearts the truth that you want us to hear this day from your holy word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. The last of his miracles. The first one was at the wedding of Cana, very happy, merry time. The last takes place in the darkness of Gethsemane, in the shadows of the cross. Yet it is against that very dark background that the miracle shines even brighter. The situation of this text is that probably Judas had left the upper room after Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper and hurried right off to the Jewish religious leaders, realizing he had to act quickly if he was going to carry out his plan to betray Jesus. A posse had to be organized. Temple police had to be notified. Even the Roman soldiers had to uh, be approved. Representatives of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, of course, were very much involved as well. Finally, all was in readiness, and out they went to find Jesus. But it's not, it was not to be as easy as they thought. Possibly Judas took them to the upper room first, and they found that it was empty. Nobody there. But eventually, he led them out to the Garden of Gethsemane. It seems to have been late, perhaps around midnight. Festivities in most of the land at the Passover time had quieted down. The city was comparatively without noises. The Paschal moon was shining up in the heavens. So they took torches and lamps with them. Should Jesus be concealed or conceal himself in one of the bushes or trees in the Garden of Gethsemane? In verse 47, we read that while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. Jesus was saying something to his disciples at that point. The crisis at which Jesus time and time again had warned his disciples was now about here, in Gethsemane. There came a crowd. Sort of emphasizes the intrusion of the crowd upon what he was saying, what he was teaching. He comes in verse 47, and there's also the man called Judas that's set before us by Luke. It's almost as if Luke wants us to see, this is the Judas man. Do you see this man? The designation only occurs here in the New Testament. Luke is isolating him, holding off as a distance. One of the twelve, he says, one of the twelve, the designation here isolates him even more. He was a man who lived with Jesus for about 12, three years with his fellow disciples, who heard Jesus over and over and over again talk about the kingdom of God, that he was the Messiah, that he was coming to give his life a ransom for many. He taught them parables. He dealt with argumentation that was raised against him by people, by the scribes and Pharisees. They were all witnesses of that. But what a scene. Judas comes with this mob of people, a crowd with swords and weapons, buried down upon men who only were armed with two swords, as we're told in verse 38. There's two little hand swords. Doubtless they thought, 
Who knows what Jesus and his disciples are going to do? They may mount a defense against us. They may do something we're not expecting, so we're going to be ready for them. And then Luke tells us, he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. A kiss was a common greeting in Jesus' day, a sign of friendship and esteem. But Judas uses it quite differently. Earlier, as recorded in Matthew 26, Jesus said, the one I will kiss, excuse me, Judas said, the one I will kiss, sees him. I'm going to lead you out to find him, and you'll know who he is. I'm going to go up to him and kiss him, and he's the one you're after. There must be no risk of capturing the wrong person. From Mark chapter 14, we know that Jesus permitted Judas to do this, but how he must have abhorred it, that kiss. He knew what it meant, of course. He had to do the utmost humility in his life to fulfill Scripture to the exact letter, to fulfill that passage of verse 9 in Psalm 41. But how it must have pierced his heart. Verse 48, But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Every word is emphasized here. Judas, yeah, you, I'm talking to you. Would you betray, go against your, your obligation of loyalty to me, to do that to the Son of Man with a kiss? The implication is, what kind of a person are you? But in doing that, he is giving Judas one more opportunity to see the guilt of his sin, the guilt of what he has done, and to confess that and to turn away. Even in that moment, Jesus is reaching out to Judas. Now, Luke does not mention in this connection, in this passage, the actual seizing of Jesus. When they come to him, Judas is giving him the kiss, so they begin to move in there. But Matthew and Mark indicate that after the kiss, as they sought to lay hands on him, they fell backwards. And then they finally got back up. Not quite sure what all that means, except a demonstration of, the, of Christ's power and authority. Verse 50. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Back in verse 49, when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? So they asked the question, shall we strike with a sword? It reminds us of the words of James and John earlier in Luke, when the Samaritans refused to accept them and accept Jesus into their midst. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? How often have even Christians had that attitude toward people, toward politicians, toward neighbors? Boy, I just wish some fire would come down. I wish I could, something terrible would happen to them. That was the attitude that they had when they asked the question, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? But Jesus 
replied what they did in verse 50. Indeed, one of them struck the servant of the high priest. Now, Luke doesn't tell us who that was. But if we didn't know what John reveals, we'd probably guess who that was. John does tell us in John chapter 18, it was Peter. We would expect that from him. Peter didn't wait for an answer. John, by the way, also gives us the name of the servant. Now, I know last week I mentioned to you that allegedly one of the names of the uh, three wise men was Melchior, very close to Melchor and the wisdom that I show. But I'm not sure I want to identify with this guy. He's just a servant there, not necessarily a bad guy outwardly. But Luke tells us his name was Malchus. Can't get away from Melchor, can you? <laughs> Malchus was his name. Why did Luke take such drastic action? Well, first of all, I think that's just the way Peter was. Very impetuous. He, he acted, he talked before he really thought what he was saying. Josephus, the Jewish historian, characterizes the Galileans, and Peter was from Galilee, as very pugnacious. We know something of Peter's previous boasts. Back in verse 33 of this chapter, if you go back there for a moment, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. That was Peter. And so when he realized what was going on, he had one of the swords, one of the two swords, and he went up to the servant and whacked him. Possibly the, probably the servant kind of leaned out of the way, and so all he caught was the right ear of Malchus. Another reason why he did that probably was he was emboldened by what Jesus just, had just done. When Jesus said to them, I am he, you know, we're looking for Jesus, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Well, this ought to be pretty easy. I'll just use the sword here and boy, they're really going to fall to the ground. Another reason is Possibly he expected Jesus would join him, and by his power, the arresting forces would easily be rooted. Almost, perhaps Peter had this in mind, that, well, if Jesus can do all these miracles, I'll get things going here. And he might have expected Jesus to say, all right, just, where's that other sword? Here it is. All right, now let's take care of these guys. I don't know what was going through Peter's mind when he ripped off the, the ear of this poor Malchus guy. Now, in a sense, we can hardly keep from cheering uh, Peter, his actions. Uh, I mean, what loyalty he had to Jesus. You can't complain about that. Yet how little he and the other disciples understood the need for Jesus to express self-surrender and defenselessness for the sake of people like you and me. He had to humble himself so that we proud sinners to receive salvation from him. This is part of all the process. And this is demonstrated by Christ's response that he was very unhappy with what Peter did. Verse 51, Jesus said, no more of this. That's a hard phrase, even in the Greek language, to translate the different translations, but I think with the ESV, English Standard Version, is probably as, as good as any. No more of this. Stop it. We're not going to do that. And then immediately, we read at the end of verse 51, he, Jesus, touched his ear, Malchus's ear, and healed him. 
a rather interesting miracle. It happened rather quickly. At one moment, the ear was off. The next moment, it's back on. Some scholars even wonder if maybe it was still kind of hanging there by a ligament or something, and Jesus just reaches over and does, does it. It almost seems like the, the crowd wasn't aware of what had happened. Well, they might have been aware of the, when the sword hit the ear. I'm sure Malchus yelled, yikes! <laughs> but they weren't really that much aware of what Jesus had done. Some were, I'm sure. But it happened so quickly, so powerfully, such an amazing way. Jesus reaches over, and just like that, heals his ear. There's something else very important we need to see at this point, and that is that through Peter's thoughtlessness, Jesus was placed in a very difficult position. Now his enemies could easily accuse him of being a leader of a bunch of wild ruffians. No wonder Jesus forbids his disciples to offer any further resistance. This was not the time to use the sword. That time would come, perhaps. But it would be the sword of the Spirit of, of Christ, proceeding from the mouth of him whose name is called the Word of God. What Peter didn't realize was that he potentially was hindering Jesus from what he would say later to Pilate in his defense. Remember these words Jesus said? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Good for us to keep that in mind as we serve the Lord in the church of Jesus Christ today. If the wound had not been healed, we may surmise there would have been a, a vigorous attempt to uh, apprehend these terrible attackers before further damage was done. But the only person that was seized was Jesus himself. How characteristic, though, of the Savior in the hour of bitter woe for himself still be the benefactor in that moment before his enemies and with this Jewish servant to graciously heal him. Nothing suited Luke's purpose in his gospel account here in this book that he wrote more than a portrayal of the Lord and his gentleness, his mercy, his kindness. And here with this miracle was the last service Jesus performed with his hands. Those hands that soon would be nailed to a cross. Again and again, he had placed his hands on people in his ministry to heal them, to help them, to encourage them. His last miracle used his hands to heal the servant's ear. Just very briefly, the last couple of verses here, we read that Jesus talked to the chief priests, officers of the temple and elders. Really interesting what he says, isn't it? You guys realize what you're doing. You come out with me with your swords and clubs, this big mob. To me, I was available. You could have found me many times. Quite frequently, I was in the temple teaching. Could have come to me, asked me questions. 
Some of you did, but you didn't believe me. All right. That's the way it is. I acknowledge that this is now your hour. Of course, parenthetically, it was also Jesus' hour. Time and time again, he had said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But now in this whole process of moving toward the cross in Jerusalem, now his hour is beginning to come and will reach its climax in his hours on the cross. Again, he's doing these people a favor by confronting them with their sin. Because without confession, there can be confession of sin. There can be no searching for salvation, putting trust in Christ. Your hour is here. Now, a few concluding comments about this passage that we looked at. One is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. It's very difficult for us a thing to do, isn't it? Uh, we can love those that are our friends and maybe treated us wrongly a little bit. We, and they say, oh, I'm sorry I did that. Oh, yeah, that's okay, no problem. But it's hard if somebody has really gone after you, really attacked you viciously with words, not to mention physically, how hard it must be for some wives to forgive their husbands for physically beating on them, that kind of thing. How hard when we've had a bitter relationship with a neighbor. The Bible says we're supposed to love them. Love your enemies. In some respects, it's more wonderful than when Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. For some of those around the cross hardly understood what they were doing. But this deed of mercy and forgiveness was done to cowardly foes, the worst kind of foes, the worst kind of enemies who strike the defenseless. Here's something else to think about. Don't you think Peter long remembered this miracle, this particular miracle, not to mention the others? Listen to his words in 1 Peter 2. He's writing to suffering Christians. For what credit is it, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Commenting on that, S.G. de Graff has written, By Christ's defenselessness, he earned for us the right to go out in defense of his name. We may defend only his name and word, his right and honor. Sometimes it may also be necessary for us to give ourselves up defensively for him. We may pursue only what serves the coming of his kingdom. That's the perspective we need to keep in mind as we deal with our enemies, as we deal with the problems of life. How can I help contribute to the coming of the kingdom of the Lord by my life, by what I say, by what I do? The sword or the cup? Jesus said to Peter earlier, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? recorded in John. Up in verse 42 of this chapter we've been looking at, 
We read these words. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When you think of Jesus' suffering, particularly in Gethsemane and right around Gethsemane's events, if anything Jesus wanted was to escape what was ahead of him. Father, somehow it's possible. I really don't want to go through this. But I'm here to do your will. And so I give my life for that cause. The sword of the cup. The Quran promises sensual joys and pleasures in heaven for all Muslims who die in battle in defense of their faith. And how have they been conquering the world with that message? With the sword. But the church were to be different, not with the sword. True enough, there were the crusades. People always go back to that. But by and large, the Christian is emphasized upon the message of the gospel and not physically taking the sword. Sometimes you wonder how the church, using only the sword of the word of God, how we've ever keep, kept existing. Why hasn't the church gone out of business long, long time ago? People are predicting, have been predicted that before, and they're predicting that even in our day-to-day. Church has had it. Christians, people are becoming discouraged at what they see. Tenants dwindling. Church factions fighting one another. How can the church continue? Well, of course, you know the answer. It's not our church. It's Christ's church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world, the end of the ages. Our focus must be on Christ's kingdom, his final culmination when he returns. Our message must be on setting forth the gospel. We looked at this in Sunday school this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. What is at the heart of the gospel? Christ crucified and Christ buried and risen. Christ's death, his resurrection, the two great pillars of the gospel message. We need his death. We need a savior that can die for us in our, in our place instead of us having to endure the pains of hell forever. He endured that. We need his resurrection so that by his spirit he might give us life and enable us to live and serve him, to love him, and to grow in our understanding of the scriptures. So I think these are a few lessons that I would leave with you with this text this morning. An unusual miracle, a very quick miracle, suddenly done, and there it was. But in the setting of Jesus on his way to give his life for us. Now a final thought. Use your imagination. Take a look at that crowd gathering around the cross back then. Quite a number of people were around. You see that man way in the back there? Is that Malchus? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But it's interesting to think that Malchus might have been so impressed with the miracle of Jesus and had come to the cross to see what was happening to this Jesus of Nazareth. And somewhere along the way, the Lord touched him, and he became a child of the kingdom of the Lord. The kingdom 
that we need to keep before ourselves, before our neighbors and friends and relatives, and before the watching world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of Jesus to our world, that Jesus gave his life for sinners like us. Thank you for the indwelling spirit of Jesus that reminds us that we are indeed children of God. We pray that we might be your useful servants here at Westminster Church, not only as we gather together, the fellowship we enjoy, but also as we go out into our respective neighborhoods and places of occupation and meet different people, that we might live for your glory. For it's your glory that we desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.